This is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. We're back with part two of our conversation on developing female leaders with our leadership consultant and coach, Katie Cole, and Family Church's very own Leslie Bennett. If you missed it, you should go back and listen to part one on why our churches should develop female leaders, because today we're going to talk about how we can do it better. Katie, you have written this excellent book on developing female leaders. Why don't you tell us what your research revealed, and how can we do better at this? Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah. One of the things that we found in the research that was a little surprising is how much confusion there is in almost every church around the theology about what women can right. do and can't do. And I would say this is across the theological spectrum. So very conservative, complementarian churches, there was confusion. In very egalitarian, very women empowering, can do lots of leadership, there was a lot of confusion. And so that that theme is really my number one suggestion to churches is if you just can give some clarity to where you stand theologically. The reason is because who we look for, if you think about who we look for in a leader, we're looking for people who have been walking with the Lord a long time, who are mature in their faith, who know the word, who know your church and carry its DNA, who are respected by leaders and respect their leaders. So these women who are that kind of person are very aware that there is a line somewhere. And uh, godly women, I'm just convinced, do not want to step over the line. Most of the time, these are not women who have some torch to bear. They're not trying. They don't have an agenda. They're the opposite. They want to serve. They'll wait to be asked. They don't want to bump up against the line and overstep it. They're very actually quite aware and nervous about that. And so most of them spend a lot of their time leading and serving way below where they think the line might be so that they don't accidentally bump into it or step over it. The problem is without that distinction, we are missing a lot of leadership potential. So where if if you're a five, let's say your theological line is a five, and somewhat all your women leaders are operating as a three, you are missing some big momentum and some big capacity that really your church is missing out on. And so defining that clearly really empowers women. It allows the men on your team to know what is expected and what is there room for for women. So it just gives freedom to the whole church. And I think that's so important because being able to clearly define, and this is one of the things that we're working on here at Family Church, because I I found I have laid out what I think are, I think I have a clear position on what I think we're going to do at, at our church, but I still have all kinds of pushback and strong conversations with staff members, with deacons, with other church leaders who come from a different tradition or a more uh, concerts, a background that's more conservative than where where I want family church to be. And so I have to have all of these extensive conversations with people, but being able to say, no, 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 here's where we are. This is what we do. Here's where our lines are. And then I think one of the things I loved about your book is you give these different descriptions of these different theological positions that I think are very helpful. Because even if you say, well, that doesn't exactly describe me, at least it gives you some categories, some things to talk about. 
And then you spent some time talking about the Trinitarian, what you believe about the Trinity and that's impact on, on complementarianism and so forth. So the book has some really strong theolo- uh, theological component to it. But what I think is great about your book is you give permission to all of your readers to say, look, I'm not going to fight with you about what should or should not be happening, but you should get clarity so that you can move forward. And I think that's very, very, very helpful. And so how do you think that churches can do that better, Katie, in your you know experience? Is it putting out a policy, like this is what women can do and what they can't do? Like how is that communicated out in a way that people hear and understand and know so that they know where the line is? Well, this is a controversial issue for a reason, right? There are black and white things that as believers, as Christian churches, especially in the Protestant arena, we all agree to because it's really, really clear. This is not one of those topics which is why we all disagree about them. And so part of what we have to do is really unpack Scripture for people, because as believers, we want to do what God says. And I actually appreciate the energy around this issue. And even men who are trying to, I think other people would interpret it as holding women back or being kind of towering over. I look at that and I'm like, I appreciate that they are so committed to God's word that they want to make sure their church stays on the right track. Uh, So when we clarify it, the most important thing in my mind is that we justify it with scripture. It can't be, well, we grew up this way or, well, um, this is the right thing or we all know or this is how it works in marriage. Like We have to be able to back it up with scripture because that's the thing that unifies us as believers. And so knowing the theological and the scriptural backing to your beliefs. And then I would say churches really implement it based on their culture. So there are some churches who are very clear about what they believe and what they don't believe. They've got white papers. They did two years of research. There's a 14-page document on their website for all of the public to see. You know, there's that approach. And you can go all the way over to some very effective churches that we would, every person on this podcast would have heard of that are basically like, this is such a challenging issue. We really engage it more conversationally, but we know and are clear on our stand. We use internal kind of more like guideposts, not even like documents or policies, but these are our practices. These are why there are practices. And so I think how it plays out in your culture needs to fit your culture. Because obviously a really relaxed relational culture is going to reject a policy written on the website because it doesn't fit who they are, not because of necessarily the theology of it. So the key is to know your own culture, have it clearly defined and begin implementing it in the way that your culture implements its new ideas and its new concepts. And then really being able to kind of make sure your walk matches your talk. So if you believe that women can speak to men or say a prayer, then have them pray. Don't right, right, don't do have it. every meeting and every weekend service and never have a woman pray right. because that keeps a woman from leading the greeter team because there's men there and she knows she'll have to pray before the service starts. Right. So there are these unintentional consequences when we don't have our actions match our theological position. And I think that's so vital because it, it, for, in my experience as a conservative guy from a fundamentalist background where I was saved and kind of nurtured, I just feel like a lot of what conservative churches have called Uh, theological and scriptural principles are actually more cultural preferences. And I think when you really dig into the scriptures and examine them, honestly, a lot of us can see that. And I think you see that because of all the inconsistencies and how it's all applied. So like you just said, why is it inappropriate for a woman? Well, a woman can't pray on the platform because she'd be praying in front of men, but a woman can, she will pray in front of the greeter team. So what difference does it make? And so I just think the inconsistency, the way these are applied kind of betray our lack of commitment to what we have said are theological and scriptural principles. 
And so I think that we need to to really be aware of that in each one of our churches. And I know that even for me, just trying to go back to, no, no, what does the scripture actually say? And then even if there are some things that we're going to, okay, these are our scriptural convictions about this. We believe this stuff. But these are our preferences, and we're kind of going to be guided by some preferences, even though they're just admitting it and saying what is, is very, to me, liberating and helpful. It is because this is a place where people are going to have a lot of different opinions. And women who don't have strong giftings or aren't interested in leadership aren't really going to care. And then there are going to be some other women who really want to use their gifts and feel like they aren't really able to bring their best to your church, and they're going to care a lot. And so it's not even divided by women all think this. You know, everyone got kind of their own experience. And so being able to know the difference between a scriptural mandate, do we are we on the same page with scripture and what are your preferences? I can live with a lot of preferences that might not be my own preferences if we agree that it's not the right right and wrong issue. And you and I've actually talked about some (laughs) of those. I'm flexible on those things as long as we know where it comes from and that we can change our mind on those if we decide that we need to. Yep. All right. So let's talk about some of these other principles that the research has kind of revealed and that have kind of come out that you have in your book. The second one is that we that as church leaders, we do have to recruit women differently to leadership positions. Part of it is some of these kind of biases we bring with us. But women, as a result of American culture especially, uh, tend to look at opportunities differently than men do. Part of that is because of the way we've been brought up. I think 10 or 15 years from now, this will not be as big an issue. But again, the women you're probably recruiting into leadership positions have grown up in church or have been a believer for a while. So they're carrying these things. A 20-year-old unbeliever isn't going to carry this kind of bias right, into right. their they're going to apply for every job. They want the senior pastor's job, right. to be honest. But the some women you're looking better. to yeah. for this next season have some hesitation. And so there's one piece of research that was really fascinating that when men and women apply for a job, and this is true across the board. So it is an American cultural or at least not a North American. It's not just church, but church tends to be a little bit more exacerbated. But when men and women apply for a job, men look at a job description and they go, huh, if I can kind of do good at 60% of that job, I'm going to apply for it. I'm pretty sure I'll get it and I'm going to be awesome at it. That's sort of the way right. they look at it. I'll figure it out on the job. They'll teach me. I'll talk to my dad. I'll Google something. I'll, I'll figure it out. When a woman looks at a job description, she measures herself much differently. She says, I must be awesome at every single one of these things, 100% of the job from day one, or she won't even apply. It's not even that she will she feels like she can't accept the job. She won't even apply for it. The way I see this playing out in churches is that we have all sorts of roles, again, kind of regardless of theological preferences. So even if it's a director of children's ministry, which almost every church would agree a woman could fulfill that role, right. a woman will look at that job and go, I've never been a director of children's ministry before. Even though I've served in children's ministry at this church for 15 years, even though I have my master's degree in early childhood development and a counseling degree in family psychology and a doctorate in leadership, I do not feel like I can be awesome at this job from day one. I don't know how ministry works. I don't know how church works. I don't know what the budget would be. I don't know how to run a volunteer. You know, she has all these things that hold her back. And so what happens in our leadership circles is that we advertise jobs like this and no women apply and we go, I guess 
guess women don't want to be on staff. I guess they don't want this kind of job. And that's not the case at all. And so as leaders, men or women leaders, we have to recruit women differently. Posting a job description is not enough. We have to sit down with them and say, let me tell you why I think you would be great at this job. Or in our job descriptions, we need to say, there is a six-month ramp up, or we will train you on the job, or we don't require all these things, but these are the things you will grow into over the course of a year. Whatever it is that helps a woman take that kind of 100% requirement off her mind, is going to help her even apply for the job. Even if you don't give it to her, you now know she's interested in leadership. You can advance her in her volunteer role. You can keep her in mind for future roles. It builds a culture of women are accepted into leadership in your environment. I love that so much. We actually learned that principle a few years ago from Kim Wells on our team about how men look at things differently and they'll walk, they'll take an opportunity when they're about, you know, 50, 60 percent sure that they can do it, whereas women hold back. So then I just told myself, oh, I'm just going to fake it till I make it too. <laughs> so I think it can kind of go both ways. Well, um, we can learn from some of these things. As we learn how men think, we can also think, well, hey, you know, Absolutely. And nothing's too. more frustrating than being a really competent, capable leader and not going for a job, but then the person who takes it and is now over you is like, not very good. That is so <laughs> frustrating and so common for a lot of women, especially in ministry. And so we need to change the culture in that. We need to educate women to go for it. And we need to help ourselves as leaders encourage women to go for jobs they may at first hesitate about. And it's not just paid jobs. I mean, the same thing is true for high-level volunteers. I was just talking Absolutely. to a, a lady this week about taking a high-level volunteer opportunity at our church to try to kind of start a new ministry that I wanted to do. And she was all passionate about it and telling me what ought to happen and you ought to do this. And I say, well, listen, I've never met anybody more passionate about this than you. Why don't you come help me figure out how to do this? And say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and she's exactly what you're describing. She was number she, she's she's an attorney. She was number one in her in her in her law school graduating class. She has all these community connections and all this passion. And she's just like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. It's exactly what you're describing. And so I think that's extremely helpful and instructive. And so for church for the rest of us listeners and for myself, if you really want to move the ball down the field and recruit more women on staff, more high-level volunteer leaders that are women, you're going to have to listen to this because you can't just say, hey, I threw it out there. Uh, no, no women wanted it. If you want women on your team, go get them. You've got to go figure out how to appeal to them and make the opportunities exciting and appealing to them. You know, one of the challenges that we have Katie, with male and female dynamics is this, uh, you know, we have all these moral failures in churches. A lot of them happen between two people who are on staff together. And you and I could just write a gigantic list of close friends of ours who have fallen into these traps. And so churches like ours have all of these different uh, protections and rules and guidelines that are good because uh, we need to protect ourselves and our families and our hearts, and we need to protect our church. And we operate in the only business in the world where if people have affairs, the whole church collapses. Uh, That doesn't happen at the law firm. That doesn't happen at the local public school. That doesn't happen at Walmart, but it happens here. And so I think it's right for us to be a little extra vigilant about that. So a lot of us have implemented what's commonly called the Billy Graham rule. The vice president of the United States has been criticized for operating with this rule. himself, but you have actually said, hey, the Billy Graham rule's good, but there maybe is a way that we can expand that to make sure that women are not excluded from the kind of workplace relationships, dynamic, and development that men often enjoy in a church. I am a big fan of those kind of protections, and uh, I've been 
in ministry a long time, and I really believe I have been able to have a joyful experience in ministry because I've never had something horribly inappropriate happen. I've had some really weird, awkward moments, so I'm not going to deny that. But There's lots of really, really weird, <laughs> awkward people in churches, so yeah. But I think, you know, being protected, especially as a young female leader, from those kind of boundaries being broken when I didn't know I could stand up or I wouldn't have known how to handle it or I wouldn't have had the confidence I do now to maneuver that in a leadership setting. I'm a huge fan of that. And I think just the awareness it brings to people that it is true. I mean, you can get away with a lot in a lot of other jobs. You can't get away with too many mistakes in ministry. We're in integrity-based, character-based leadership. And so what we do really matters. And even how people interpret what we do matters. So those Mm -hmm. protections are incredibly important. On the flip side, those protections are really only oriented against men and women. And the unintended consequence of that has been if, for example, one of the Billy Graham rules is that you're a man and a woman are never alone together in private, basically. And that is wonderful because you n- normally don't cross these boundaries in public. And right, so right. it protects, you know, the temptation right. or the incident from happening or a misinterpretation of something happening. But the unintended consequence of that is that, Jimmy, you could get together with one of your campus pastors and hang out or go out to lunch together. And that is wonderful. And it's great mentoring and it's great leadership and it's great friendship. But as a woman, especially if you're one of the few women on staff, you really miss out on those sort of informal friendships, informal networking, and informal mentoring that is so critical in higher levels of leadership. And so should women be protected? Should we protect ourselves even as uh, men pastors? Like, absolutely. The problem for me now, though, with the actual Billy Graham rule is I don't think it's enough for our culture because we live in an LGBTQ environment. I think, Pastor Jimmy, you traveling with a young intern and sharing yep, a room together we would never to do save it. costs yeah. and all of that is like is actually completely inappropriate because it is open for just as much criticism. Couldn't agree There's more. just as much temptation. There's all of those things. There's no protection in that for us now. And so my recommendation, and I certainly don't have all the details of this figured out, but I'm all about windows and offices. I'm all about people seeing right, everybody right, right. else's email, all that. But when it comes to actual leadership practices, we need to push into the fact that we need to take away from kind of those one-on-one exclusive relationships in general. So if you're going to take someone to the hospital with you, take two people. If you're going to go out to lunch with some younger pastors, take two people with you. So if you don't have women on the team, take two guys, but make the practice of always taking at least two. But if you have women, make sure to include them. So take them to the conference, take them out to lunch, take them to the hospital, have them go to the funeral with you and do all the leadership things you would do with anyone you're taking along. Talk to them about it beforehand, let them watch you in the moment, debrief with them afterwards. But the the extra leadership piece to me that I feel like actually is such a wise investment is now you've given two young leaders a friendship together so that they're not just connected to you personally. That's part of the inappropriate intimacy that can happen in these environments. But now they have one another. And so now there's a friendship, there's a peer connection, there's some accountability that they can have to grow in leadership that takes you out of the equation and you is sort of like the grand poobah of all the knowledge. You know, right. so everybody right. wins when we sort of expand those rules and expand that. It also helps us multiply our leadership teams. We give many more people a lot more opportunity to be in in the room, in the decision, in the conversation. So that's really my challenge is to think differently and bigger and broader about those guidelines that we are implementing. Well, I think at Family Church too, 
one of the things that we've tried to do on our retreats and meetings and other things, if we just tried to say, hey, we're, we're always going to have women on these things. So we try not to take one woman by herself. So she'll have at least one other woman with her. Or other times we've actually invited her husband to come, even if he's not on staff, let him be there as a part of the, the deal. And we've tried to find ways to do it in an appropriate way so that I don't want anyone else, well, a spouse to feel like, oh, something weird's going on. I don't want my spouse to feel like something weird's going on. And so I do think the protections are important. But And, and having women, you know, a lot of times for a, a male leadership team at a church, it is a locker room environment. And there's something powerful about that. Having women in the locker room changes. It's no longer a locker room environment. But the truth is what I've found is it actually elevates our discourse. So there's not as much middle school, you know, humor going on, maybe still a little bit, but not as much. And it just kind of elevates everything. People are more professional. They, they have better manners. We tend to start and stop on time. There's not as much uh, wasted time because, you know, we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to have some fun together. We're going to get to know them, but we're going to have a meeting. We're going to get some stuff done. So I've actually found having women in the room makes the time better spent and more valuable. Which has really been helpful to me, Jimmy, because we've had some of those conversations too, where when you are the only woman in the room, you feel like you're busting up the old boys club, you feel kind of bad, you know, like you, you feel like they'd be having more fun if you weren't there. So Pastor Jimmy said to me, like, I don't feel that way. Like, I'm glad that you're there. What he just said, it elevates the conversation. So I think just communicating that out so that people realize that's not what's happening here. We're not busting up the old boys club. We're actually at the table. We're actually bringing something to the table. We can still have fun. We don't have to have a chip on our shoulder every time we turn around. Um, but at the same time, we can be appropriate with each other and learn how to have friendship. And one of the things that we've done here at Family Church is to really have a culture of thinking about each other as brothers and sisters, which has really helped. So this is my brother, this is my sister, keeps that Christ-centered focus on our male-female relationship. And keeps it fun. Like yeah. leadership should be right. fun. Right. There should be, you know, some body humor thrown in there somewhere if you're working with guys. <laughs> you know, like those things are going to happen. As a woman, I love that. You know, I yeah. love having brothers. They've been, especially the brothers that I lead with, they have been such an encouragement to me. They speak in ways that I can't get from anyone else. There is a safety there and a protection and an encouragement that is so valuable to me. And I would miss out on and in environments where I've been with only women. I have missed out on those things, just like men are missing out without women. So the brother, sister, sibling, family feel is definitely what we're going for. That you know, the world kind of says the future is female. I really want to champion that the future is together. That's like right. that's yeah, what the, I love that's that. what the church is about. Okay, so we got all of these churches, including ours, different sizes, different contexts. How can we get started? So what would be a, some baby steps forward to get the ball rolling if we say, okay, I want to do something about this. I want to move forward. I, I don't know where to start. Here are some three kind of easy first steps. So the first one is really as individual leaders, we have to work and check on our own kind of biases. And so I would really encourage everyone, wherever you're at in the organization, even if you're a member, a volunteer, on the elder board, on staff, whatever, to begin asking some women in your church, what is it like to be a leader here? What's it like to be a female here? What does it feel like? What's the weekend experience? You know, do you feel like it's speaking to you? Is there anything you're missing? What am I not seeing? And the key to that is really having a very open attitude about what they share with you. You probably won't agree with her perspective because you don't see it that same way. But valuing her perspective and even asking a few people, if you start to hear some commonalities, you probably need to think that this might actually be true, even though it's hard to understand. So that would be the first thing is to ask questions and really listen. Great topic in your 
your book too. And you actually give some more detailed ways that you can ask those questions, specific questions to ask, ways to host focus groups. So really helpful aspect. All right, what do you have next? Uh, The second one is get some women on the platform. And wherever you're at in your theology, you might have different rules about what's appropriate for that. But I have not met anyone who loves giving announcements. And so I have found (laughs) announcements is a great first step for uh, women being on the platform. There isn't really any spiritual authority with that. It's really just telling people what's coming up. You know, we have the connections or membership class after church with a free lunch. Next Sunday, we're going to be doing baptism, sign up in the lobby, you know, that kind of thing. But having a female on the platform really makes a difference and communicates something. Um, It's sort of like in the business world when you have an office versus in the cubicles. No one might know what your job is, but just the fact that you have a door says you matter and that you know things. And so (laughs) when you are, the equivalent to that in church is when you are on the platform for any reason, you have some sort of role or authority or are recognized by the leaders. And so Bev Bonner has done a great job here at the downtown campus. There's other women who uh, do different parts in our campuses. So here downtown or closing the service or whatever it happens to be. And you can certainly take that all the way to worship leading or praying for the offering or anything, being on a panel to preach, any of those sorts of things. But having women regularly up there just lets the women in your audience know, you know they're there and you know that they matter. And the third thing is, if you're looking for more of kind of a systems-wide thing, I really think anytime we can introduce using spiritual gifts for placement in ministry, it's just so easy to assume that women kind of do the meal train for sick people and guys run all the classes. And there are a lot of great men that I know who are excellent cooks (laughs) and they should probably be doing the meal train. And there are some wonderful women who have incredible gifts of teaching and they should be teaching a Sunday school. And so helping, even if it's just a quick 20-minute assessment that you can find online anywhere and put it in your membership class and have some of your pastors just talk about their volunteer roles in terms of giftedness rather than we love to have a bunch of women organize the office. Instead saying, we're really looking for gifts of service, helps, and administration. It helps people really think about their gifting, not about their gender and where they're welcome to serve. I think it's so fantastic. And Katie, it's always a pleasure having you on the podcast, having you at Sharper. And it really is a joy having you and uh, Matt and your family in our church. And I'm just so grateful that you speak into our lives. And so what we're doing here, Leslie, today is not just hearing from some special guests from somewhere. This is a sister that's in our church family that's actually laboring with us as we try to figure this stuff out. So incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, and I do want to mention, Jimmy, that we just, we you haven't read the book because you've listened to this podcast. So Katie actually has eight best practices, not just three. So there's a lot more that we could talk about, but we can't cover it all. And we really are looking forward to getting the book, getting it in the hands of everybody on our team so that we can continue to have this conversation because we certainly don't have it all figured out. You can learn more about Katie, her consulting business, if you want her to come work with your church, her speaking schedule and her book at katiecole.com. That's K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E.com. You can also get the book at Amazon. And also, I would love for you to register for our Sharper Conference coming up in March. You can come and meet Katie there, and we can learn to do better on this topic and so many others, and we can do it better together. So register today at sharperconference.com. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or Check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. 
Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins, and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.